You may have noticed as you came in this morning, the front of your bulletin looks a little bit different than it has in the last few weeks past. You may have noticed it has a graphic on it that says, oh, I know, thank you, Hannah, uh, that says, a God who, and today it says, a God who appears. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be taking a look at who God is based on stories of the Old Testament, particularly in Exodus. So we're going to be talking about a God who appears, a God who accompanies, a God who is prejudiced, and a God who is passionate. So I hope over these next few weeks we'll be able to look back and look forward as as we talk about who God is, um, both to the people of long ago and to the people uh, gathered here now. So if you would, let's pray together. God, in these next few moments, I ask that you would speak in me, speak through me, speak in spite of me. Amen. It's sometimes hard to assign adjectives to God. Well, maybe it's not that hard because we do it quite often and quite freely. We know that all the time, God is good. And God is good, thank you. Let's try that again. All the time, and God is good, y'all know. But we also know that coffee is good at 7 a.m. when your dog, all the time really, but at 7 a.m. when your dog has been up barking at your neighbors all night. We also know that basketball in the state of Kentucky is pretty good. And we also know that your favorite artist's music, especially on vinyl, is good. We also know that the covers, that the ceiling covers of the Sistine Chapel and the murals that mark the different neighborhoods in Louisville are good. We also know that when bitter cold temperatures turn to lukewarm temperatures, it's good. So when do our adjectives to describe God fall short? Because isn't God more good than all the other good things in our lives? Baptist theologian and professor Dr. Stephen Holmes says this. He says that the Bible is not essentially composed of propositions such as God is good, although it's certainly not without them. Rather, he says, its essential form is narrative. Together with a significant number of prayers addressed to God, and material exploring what life pleasing to God might look like in various contexts. If all we had were a series of assertions that God is good, loving, holy, etc., then it might be difficult to give content to these words. If, however, 
we can combine a claim that God is good with such narratives, prayers, and commands, then there is a possibility of recognition. In narrative history, we can see ways in which God has acted, ways which resonate with our experiences of human goodness. In other words, (laughs) although these short phrases and assertions that God is good or God is love are not wrong, we are a people who like a good story. God does not give us a bullet point list of who God is without a story to back it up. And we know in the New Testament that then Jesus comes in and uses more stories called parables so we can understand divine things on a human level. We rely on stories from early on in our faith development rather than bullet point lists that tell us who God is how God works. So today, as Cecil read earlier, our story begins where Moses finds himself in the wilderness. And he has left the palace of Pharaoh some time ago. Remember, he was there because he was put in a basket and put on the river. And the Pharaoh's family took him into the royal household. And eventually he fled. And then we find him tending sheep. Long story short. And the Lord appeared to him in the form of a burning bush that was not burning itself up. And Moses gets curious and goes to look closer. And God says, hold up, no closer. You are standing in the presence of God that has been with all of your ancestors, your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now I'm here with you. And Moses hides his face because this encounter with God is so powerful. No, good Gary, see, we attempt to put words on it, but our words fall short. And then God reveals why God has appeared. God says, I have observed the misery of my people. God says, I have heard their cry. God says, I know their suffering. God says, I see how the Egyptians oppress. And while it's easy as children to hear the story of Moses and Pharaoh as Moses good and Pharaoh bad, the story, when we hear it as adults, doesn't say as much about mean old Pharaoh, but tells us what God's response is when God's people have not been able to be free or have experienced physical, mental, emotional oppression or abuse. God is sympathetic, yes. God is near, yes. But when our adjectives fall short, God appears. I was talking to a friend this week about what it means to have spiritual trauma. Or perhaps church trauma. It's real and sometimes it's still too close to talk about. And sometimes as human beings, we compare our trauma to others' 
trauma. And we don't tend to recognize our own trauma or think it's enough to warrant attention because it doesn't seem as bad as theirs. It's often tied to abusive situations. It's tied to lives of children or vulnerable adults who experience unwanted pain or suffering. Trauma in its most basic form is a deeply disturbing or a distressing experience. So trauma can be created when someone is lied to, when someone is cheated on, when someone experiences violence to themselves or others, when someone is rejected over and over, when someone is made fun of or bullied for how they speak or look or act or who they love, or when someone has space violated. All different levels of trauma. And as human beings, our tendency is to compare how, how deep our wounds are or what type of wounds we have with those of others. I think especially around the church, we hardly recognize this pain as trauma. But oftentimes... Most times, our wounds are deeper than we would let on. When we don't tend to our own wounds, when people or institutions have hurt us, we are more likely to become bitter, to turn inward, or even to wound others. This is called systematic trauma, when a wound we have is passed on to others or even others of another generation. You may have heard it called family systems theory in the world of psychology and counseling. When the Israelites were living for generations as property, as slaves, as things, this system of thought was being passed down from one generation to another. When people are made to think they are nothing, they begin to act like they are nothing. And they let others treat them as they are nothing. And when people act like they are nothing, they begin to believe they are nothing. And remember way back in Genesis when God made human beings and our God said that we are good because we possess the image of the most good and most high God. When anyone functions without this truth, when anyone functions without internalizing and accepting and believing and living the truth that they are good and beloved children of God, they are not living the way that God intended. So God appears. Dr. Norman Wurzba writes in his book called The Way of Love, these words. Recall that when hearts are wounded or sick, people tend to turn away from others and then inward as a coping strategy. Protective walls are built to keep the pain away. Healing, however, is the reverse movement. It is the action that opens people to others the world, and to life's possibilities. It is a process whereby hearts are cleansed of fear and guilt and then redirected so that people can participate in the flows of love that join them to each other, 
to their places and to God. To be sick is to be diseased, ill at ease, unable to be with others in a harmonious way. It is eventually to find oneself fragmented and alone. To be healthy, on the other hand, is to be able to move freely, sympathetically, and shamelessly among others. It is to be able to experience conviviality, there's a word, that is possible in a shared life. In the midst of brokenness, God sees the need for healing. And so God appears. Because that is who God is. That is the story of who God is. God sees and God appears. So then Moses is sent by God to lead these wounded and oppressed people out from under the hand of Pharaoh. And in Moses' fear, he asks God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Moses asked, what if they ask me who sent me? What's your name? And God replies, not in adjective form. God replies in the form of a very small narrative. God replies, I am who I am. Which we can also read as, I will be who I will be. Which also theologian Martin Buber says, I will be there as I will be there which puts the accent not on the name or the adjective of God, but on the ongoing promise of God's presence in our lives. God does not set God's self up as a name, but as a relationship. In our four words at Ridgewood, the first one is heal. I don't know where you are in your story of faith, Maybe you've been going to church nonstop since the day you were born. Maybe you've had a break in church going. Maybe the church has hurt you. Maybe this church has reminded you that there is joy and goodness in a faith community. I would love the chance to be able to talk to you about your story. Where the hard times have been. Where the good times have been and all the in-between. But I hope that this place the place where you are finding healing. Because if anything has shown me, if, if I've seen anything in the past month that I've been here, it's that God appears here weekly. Would you pray with me? God of our yesterdays, God of our tomorrows, Thank you that you have appeared here today. We ask that you may use us as your hands and feet. That your presence may be real and close and near to others who need to know you.